if the assignment is like, hey, let's make better use of this thing we've already invested so much in creating, all kinds of things can happen. And, and again, you know, you need to be discerning and, and do all the financial fundamental work that goes along with these ideas. But that's really interesting. And we don't get to see industries transform like this very often. So it's, again, it's a really exciting theme that carries across a lot of different sectors. This is Money Conscious from Millstone Evans Group. I'm your host, Sasha Millstone. Join me as we discuss investing, financial planning, and life. Visit us at millstoneevansgroup.com. And thanks for joining us. Before we get started, I want to mention that I decided to divide my interview with Katherine Collins, brilliant sustainability thinker and strategist, into two episodes. I think you'll see why as we dive in. This episode is part one, and it is focused on Catherine's sustainable investing philosophy. We introduce you to her concept of the circular economy and explain what that term means in terms of sustainability. Part two focuses on our thoughts about best practices during volatile markets, including how to manage emotions, which are bound to be affected at times to make better decisions. Both parts are important and engaging, and only about 20 minutes each. Perfect for a car ride, walk, or break from work. Our listeners are in for a real treat today. In my view, our guest, Catherine Collins, Head of Sustainable Investment Management at Putnam Investments, is one of the most fascinating thinkers in the investment world today. Catherine has been on the leading edge of the financial services industry her whole career. She started as a stock research analyst at Fidelity in 1990. That was early days for women in research and in the investment world period. But Catherine's talents were recognized. And after numerous promotions, she became the head of all equity research for Fidelity Investments in 2002 one of their most prestigious roles and truly a shattering of a glass ceiling. But she didn't stop there, always one to break the mold. Catherine became more and more interested in the concept of sustainability and investment research. And she ultimately left Fidelity and enrolled in Harvard Divinity School at the end of 2007. When she completed her Master's of Theological Studies, she started her own research firm called Honeybee Capital, Putnam became a client, and in time, Putnam attracted her to come aboard and head up sustainable investing for them. Catherine also runs two funds, Putnam Sustainable Future Fund and Putnam Sustainable Leaders Fund. So welcome, Catherine. We're thrilled to have you here. Thanks so much, Catherine. Thanks for the great introduction. It was a really wonderful overview. There's a lot to talk about in your career. Let's start by giving our listeners a better understanding of the two funds that you manage. What is the focus of each fund and how are they different? Oh, good. I'm glad we'll dive right in there. So as you mentioned, there there are two offerings we have here at Putnam that I manage with my colleague, Stephanie Dobson, who has been with me since day one here at Putnam, building up both the research and the product side of things with respect to our sustainable equity offerings. There are a few things that these two offerings have in common. One is that we really center on the idea that sustainability is increasingly 
relevant and important to the core business strategies of the companies in which we're investing. And so when we say we have a fundamentally oriented approach to sustainability, that's that's exactly it. We're not looking at sustainability as something separate from all of the other business considerations that we normally would have. We're looking at it as connected to. And that connection is really key. So the two portfolios, they are what they sound like. Putnam Sustainable Leaders is companies that are leading the way in the sustainability issues that are most important for their specific business context. Not just sufficient, not just managing along okay, not just mitigating potential risk, but actually adding to their strategic advantage over time by their excellence in sustainability. The Putnam Sustainable Future portfolio is what it sounds like. It's investing in companies where their actual products and services are directly solving a key sustainability issue. And again, the premise here is is kind of self-evident. If you're solving a really key problem in the world, the chances are high you can develop a pretty good business. You know, that's a valuable thing to be doing. And so the two portfolios complement each other, both philosophically and in terms of their investment characteristics. They're both pretty growth oriented, but the leader's portfolio, as you might guess, tends to skew a little bit larger cap, a little bit more household names that would be familiar to folks. And the sustainable future portfolio tends to skew a little more towards mid-cap oriented growth companies. You give a lot of thought to the future in your investment philosophy. You've put out a fascinating paper about the circular economy. Would you talk a little bit about your concept of the circular economy and how you are using it as an investment framework? Oh, I'm so glad you asked because this is one of the most exciting themes and the broad-based themes in terms of the different types of businesses and different operating settings that it can impact. So first, just to put this concept of circular economy in its proper place, we have a pretty open-ended research tool that we use called the Investing to Thrive map, where we ask what is needed for thriving? Where are those potential solutions in the world? We look at individual thriving, we look at social thriving for public and, and institutional thriving, and we look at planetary thriving. And so there's a lot of different categories under each of those headings, but it's a pretty unique starting point. You know, we're not looking to map all possible innovation in the world. We're not starting with a list of solutions that already exist in the public markets. We're starting with this really essential question, what is needed for thriving? And then following up with with the investment research from there. So it's a really helpful map, literally, to guide our research. And one key theme that started rising in importance in that map was this theme of circular economy. Some of you might already be familiar with it. The core concept sounds straightforward. It's that we have had in many circumstances an economy that had sort of a linear model to it. You would take raw materials, turn them into a product, and then dispose of that product at the end. This is a logical model. It's especially logical if you're in a totally abundant environment for resources, but it has some really serious limits. The circular economy says, hey, if you want to be a better long-term steward of those resources and benefit by having the, the financial certainty that that provides, you might want to think about a more circular model, something that looks a little bit more like a natural system. So yes, you still would be using raw materials in some instances, but paying a lot more attention to reuse, to recycling capabilities, to the ability to reuse certain components, to share different resources and build uh, business models along that, and then to think about the entire life cycle of what you're creating. So literally more of a circle and less of a line. So the concept is is pretty straightforward, but what we found in diving into it with this fundamental perspective is that there was a little bit of a gap 
you had this wonderful, elegant philosophical concept kind of way up here at the mega scale. And then you had a number of companies who were mentioning circular economy and starting to structure their messaging around it as well. But many of those companies were really limited in their scope. So companies that do waste collection, for example, obviously are involved in the recycling business. What we saw was a much broader set of use cases. Really, we're talking here about how all the stuff in the world is created and used. Like, whoa, that's really big. So what we did in this circular economy report is we described different types of business models and how you might see the circular economy show up in those business models, whether it was called that or not. This led us to a much broader opportunity set of companies that, that would be engaged in a much broader opportunity set of investment potentials as well. So just to kind of bring that to life, for example, one company that we've been involved with really for a number of years now is Ball Corporation, maybe familiar too to a lot of folks on this call. Ball, as you all know, makes aluminum cans. Historically, this would have been one of those industries that was a little more linear in nature. You know, you start with the raw material, you produce this product, the product gets discarded. For many years now, Ball and, and really the whole field have been focused much more on recycling and aluminum is pretty attractive in this regard. Some of you who have domain knowledge here might already realize this, but aluminum is infinitely recyclable at a very high quality rate. It's, it's a pure material. So when you recycle aluminum, you get aluminum. Whereas when you recycle plastic, you get a lesser form of plastic. And so there are some inherent qualities to aluminum that are really, really attractive from a reuse standpoint. Ball has really doubled down here. They have increased their own connection to that recycling loop. They have really helped recycling rates for aluminum to continue to accelerate both in the U.S. and abroad. This is improving their long-term cost structure, and it's also improving their messaging and their promises to consumers and customers who are increasingly much more focused on this. So if you are a beverage company and you want to be able to say you are serious about thinking about single-use waste in the world, if you have a commitment to using aluminum, it's much easier to kind of prove that out. So here you have this amazing alignment of environmental benefit, cost structure benefit, and customer demand benefit. And you're seeing that shine through in both financial results these last few years. I was really fascinated, too, by your discussion of industries and the circular economy. And maybe we could focus on one or two of your favorite industries. I was fascinated by the fashion industry. What are you finding there? Fashion is still, of, of all the mentions in the sustainability landscape, fashion is still kind of quiet in many circles. And yet it is a huge area of potential improvement particularly in the U.S., the utility rate of, of fashion is really pretty low. The average lifespan of a given article of clothing is just like seven or eight times. So you, you buy something, you use it seven or eight times, and then what? Maybe you give it to charity, maybe you pass it on to someone else, but it is a very inefficient reuse and pass along rate within fashion. And so this question of whether there are improvements to make at the front end of that process is really key. So one is whether materials can be used or reused, as we just talked about with ball, but with textiles, which is much harder and, and a really interesting technical riddle to solve. Another area within fashion is the loop that has to do with resale and, and sharing economy approaches. So in this area, we have some really new business models. I'm not going to lie, they're pretty risky. It's very early days, not yet fully proven out economically, but this is a fascinating thing to watch. So some of you might have used services like Rent the Runway, for example, where instead of buying a fancy dress for that cocktail party, you rent one, someone else can use the dress next week and it doesn't sit in your closet for the next 10 years because you think maybe someday you're going to wear it again, which 
never seems to happen, right? So you've got an entirely new business model in this case, not just a different way to think about the product itself, but a way to think about how that product goes out into the world and how we get the most out of it. We see some similar loops that are possible for companies like Levi's, where they are indeed improving the efficiency of their operations and the recycling and environmental intensity of making the product in the first place. But they also are developing their own secondhand initiative. They have very strong brand loyalty and very strong product quality. And so it's one of the few cases where this is possible of building out their own small resale business within the larger Levi. We see some similar examples from non-public companies like Patagonia that might be familiar to folks as well. So this idea that if you have high quality clothing, it, it shouldn't be worn seven times and then sit in a closet or be passed along somewhere else. It should, it should have a much more active and, and extended lifespan to it. So that's an example of a product that is more complicated to make. And there's a different type of engagement with the circular economy that is possible because of that. It's becoming trendy. I was recently in New York And I went to visit the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and I always go to the costume exhibit as soon as I get there. And the first part of the exhibit was focused on clothing that was designed and created from other clothing and from quilts and other things. And the designs were spectacular. Yeah, it really really opens up this arc of creativity as well, particularly in something like fashion. Not every business lends itself to creativity. Like there's only so much you want to do with an aluminum can maybe, although some folks would argue with me there. But, but you know, I also studied this field of, of biomimicry, which is the idea that you look to natural systems for, for inspiration and for design advice. And one element that's really important there is this idea that the, the limits in any given situation are where the creativity happens. And so if the assignment is like, hey, let's make better use of this thing we've already invested so much in creating, all kinds of things can happen. And, and again, you know, you need to be discerning and, and do all the, all the financial fundamental work that goes along with these ideas. But that's really interesting. And we don't get to see industries transform like this very often. So it's, again, it's a really exciting theme that carries across a lot of different sectors. Currently happening. Tell us about one of your favorite industries and what they've accomplished so far. Oh, well, you know, just to maybe round out this theme of circular economy, again, because it's it's so broad and it extends across so many arenas. One area that has had pervasive focus on circular economy, but hasn't really called it that, is very high tech businesses. And in particular, a small subset called semiconductor capital equipment. Again, some folks might already be familiar with it, but if you ever wondered where do semiconductors come from? Well, you know, it's pretty complicated to make them and the equipment that powers the fabs that then make the semiconductors that then power all the end products that we use is really important. It's a pretty concentrated business. It's very very complicated in terms of the capital intensity and also the technological intensity of the product. So these are companies where you can count on one hand sometimes the number of shipments in a given month or even a given quarter, like it's that big and complicated of of a business. And so one key question when you get to something that technologically advanced is, whoa, that's a huge investment just to get to the point where you have a working product in the world. Again, the the natural question is, how can we get the most out of that? How can we extend the life of the product that already exists? How can we support it with repair and service offerings that keep it going for longer because it is such a big upfront investment? How can we, at what would be the end of the life, take different modules of what has been created and reuse them maybe in lagging edge applications instead of leading edge applications? So this whole body of work that I just described is something that has been really 
prominent for companies like ASML or Applied Materials, leading providers of semiconductor equipment. But we haven't really labeled it circular economy before. So again, I, I love it when we see a theme like this that is so broad-based, and then we can identify areas where that theme is relevant, even if we haven't had a name for it so far, and kind of look at these companies that we know so well, but with this slightly different lens to see what else we can discover about the strengths of these businesses. And sure enough, if you think about the growing service business for for these types of companies, the increasing steadiness that that provides to their long-term financials, and the way that all of those things link back to this really strong market position they have due to the core technological strength of, of what they're doing in the first place, it all knits together in a, in a really interesting and powerful way. It's fascinating to listen to your description and think about how far the field of what used to be called socially responsible investment, now ESG, environmental, social, and governance, how far this whole field has come during the course of our careers. It's really evolved dramatically. I think early on, it was about more what not to own. And it's a very different landscape today, isn't it? Yeah, that's such an important observation. And, and you know, everything we've been talking about is really specific to the position that Putnam has. You know, we are long-term active managers. And one of the greatest things about being an active manager is that you wake up in the morning and really the only question that you have to answer is, instead of what are you against, what are you for? You know, what deserves one of these precious spots in these pretty concentrated portfolios that we're running? That's a really interesting starting point. I love taking that starting point and linking it to these key sustainability questions, because instead of spending our time deciding what not to own or or what we're against or what is marginally better on on sort of a compliance oriented question versus marginally worse, we get to have this this kind of North Star again of, of fundamental relevance for the two products we're talking about, Putnam Sustainable Leaders and Putnam Sustainable Future. We certainly attend to all of those other elements as well, but to have the bulk of our time and our focus really steered in this much more proactive direction is is just a huge gift. It makes the day much more fun in addition to everything else, but we think that is that's where the investment merit is as well, right? And so if our goal is to generate added investment merit by approaching things this way, this is the way to get there. And you produce an impact report every year. So I imagine that part of what you're looking at, well, maybe tell us what what are you guys looking at when you do your research to tell your investors what the impact has been in the past year of their investments? Yeah, it's it's such an important question, Sasha. I mean, we all the practitioners I know in the field are so focused on trying to prove out more and more effectively, more and more completely like, hey, hey, does this matter? Like, is it working? We have a million different ways to prove out the the financial and investment returns case. But the measurement, the metrics, the explanations for thinking about the impact of what we're investing in outward into the world is still very much in formation. I'm glad you raised this question because there there is a little bit of a tension in the field and it's it's not a new tension. Some of you might remember Robert Kennedy's famous speech on GDP and how, you know, it counts the things that can be counted, but it it doesn't necessarily count all the things that matter. And we have the same issue within the ESG and sustainable investment landscape now. We have more and more data. It's better and better data. So from a research perspective, I'm so excited to be in the middle of of this landscape as it evolves. But we don't have tidy answers yet on the most interesting questions, 
we have answers on some pretty basic questions that are good stepping stones, but not really complete in and of themselves. So maybe just to bring this to life a little bit more, a lot of folks care about diversity and inclusion, as do we. We care because we have lots of evidence that decision makers make better decisions, especially in situations that are complicated or rapidly evolving, which is certainly the case for almost every business setting today. And so the general premise here is that diversity of of mindset, diversity of backgrounds, diversity of skills is going to potentially add to company strategic decision-making over time. So again, very clear through line to long-term performance. But when we look at the data that we have on diversity, where is the data most complete? Well, I can tell you to very high degree of accuracy, diversity on gender within boards of directors. That's great. I'm really interested in that. I couldn't even tell you that going back 10 years ago. But if I'm interested in, you know, inclusion of of diverse views across a whole range of of layers within any given corporation. Like this is a tiny, tiny piece of a much bigger, more interesting puzzle. And so we do want to analyze that tiny piece and learn whatever we can from it. And we report out on that in our impact report, along with a range of other measures. But the reason the impact report is so long is that we're trying to create this bigger picture and say, look, here is one indicator but here is, is the bigger question that we're trying to get at. And here are the clues we have. Here's how we're researching it. Here's what's on the horizon for further investigation. And so, again, we're, we're fundamental analysts. We love research. You can probably tell from the way I'm going on and on here. For that perspective, we think this is the kind of reporting that is most helpful. For other types of investing, it's a, it's a much more you know black and white. Here are the 10 data points, and that's the end of it. But since we're taking this forward-looking proactive approach to the investing. We want to reflect that in our reporting as well. Well, I'm sure that what the questions you're asking and the data that you're searching for in the process of that, you're pushing the industry forward again, because you're right, the data is really great in some areas. And in some areas, it's, it's not at all sufficient. And we really, in order to talk about what impact we're actually making, we we need to have it all. So congratulations on pushing the industry. It's really vital. I hope you enjoyed part one of my two-part conversation with Catherine Collins. Here are three takeaways that are key. First, we talked about the importance of the circular economy. The circular economy is a model of production and consumption, which involves ways of sharing, leasing, reusing, repairing, refurbishing, and or recycling existing materials and products as long as possible. We have had for a long time, of course, a linear economy. In the linear model, a producer turns raw materials into a product, the consumer buys it, and disposes of that product after often limited use. The circular economy has evolved as producers and consumers more creatively and strategically consider ways that waste can be avoided by creating value for others through a circular cycle of continuous use. Second, the idea that sustainability is now a strategy integral to long-term business and investment success is really key. Catherine shared a little about how researchers at her firm evaluate environmental, social, and governance aspects of a company's operations and activities. She is heartened by how we are now much better able to gather and track more and more data, which is also better and better data. 
It is exciting to be part of this rapidly evolving landscape in which analytics and case studies are helping business leaders make smarter decisions. Every year, her team publishes their annual impact report, which discusses exactly how the companies she invests in are achieving ESG and circular economy successes. Third, we are living in a time of great tumult and change, some of which is very difficult. But we must also remember that times like this, which lay bare the need for new and better solutions, can also offer real opportunities for important breakthroughs. Thanks for listening to Money Conscious. Visit us at millstoneevansgroup.com. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Sasha Millstone. Sasha Millstone is the president and an investment advisor with the Millstone Evans Group, a registered investment advisor located in Colorado. All opinions expressed by Sasha and her podcast guests on this show are their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Millstone Evans Group. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and unless otherwise stated are not guaranteed. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.